Are you confused about real food and what's healthy and good for the planet? Do you need the facts about local, organic, and sustainable food? Well, get ready to change the way you eat. Get ready for The Appropriate Omnivore with Aaron Zober. Hello, and welcome to another episode of The Appropriate Omnivore on our new home at New Dissident Radio. It's the second week of Meaty May, and today we'll be hearing from Dr. Deborah Gordon about why meat is part of a heart-healthy diet. Plus, the desserts will tell you how to live appropriately in the upcoming week. But first, let's go to the appetizers and find out what's happening in the world of real food. The month of Meaty May happens to coincide with the recent news about the studies regarding carnitine in meat, increasing people's TMAO levels and leading to heart disease. Now, the Mayo Clinic has published a new meta-analysis of the research on carnitine and heart disease. Their review finds evidence that carnitine is actually good for the heart and that a lack of carnitine will decline the heart's muscles over time. As meat is a product that's kept many cultures healthy for generations, it makes sense that carnitine is something that would be beneficial. Bravo to the Mayo Clinic for being in support of meat. Next, the Environmental Protection Agency is proposing to raise the amount of residue allowed in the herbicide glyphosate in various foods and animal feeds. The EPA has recently published a study showing that glyphosate prevents beneficial gut bacteria from growing and causes the overgrowth of pathogenic bacteria, but pressure from Monsanto has them putting forward a change in the law opposite what their findings suggest. This goes to show that the EPA is another government agency that can't be trusted when it comes to making food safe for us. In other food safety news, government scientists have examined an outbreak of 148 illnesses from Campylobacter last year at the Pennsylvania raw dairy company, The Family Cow, and have concluded that it's impossible to produce raw milk that's safe. The study says it might be possible to reduce the risks of unpasteurized milk, but consumers can never be assured that it's pathogen-free. This is the same old vilification that raw milk has been getting for the last 100 years because of unsanitary conditions in the dairies. You can never be assured that any product is pathogen-free, and there are a number of foods that have more outbreaks than raw milk, like pasteurized milk for one. And finally, two large honey packers, including Grove Farms, the largest honey supplier in the country, have admitted they've been mislabeling honey that was from China. China has been moving honey to countries like Indonesia and Vietnam, where it's then being labeled as local before being sent to the U.S. While China is known for a lack of food standards, you shouldn't be buying honey from any foreign country. Avoid any big honey producers, as their product is always pasteurized, and buy honey that's local to your area so you can get the best health benefits. And now, for the main course. We continue with Meaty May, discussing why it's good for you and the planet. Today, I'm going to be interviewing Dr. Deborah Gordon. Dr. Deborah is an organ MD practicing integrative medicine. She recently wrote an excellent article talking about what meats to eat on a regular basis to maintain a healthy heart. In it, she also discussed what fruits and vegetables you should pair with your meats, as well as some supplements you can use. Here now is Dr. Deborah to discuss all of these important foods to have a heart-healthy diet. Deborah, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Aaron. It's good to be here. 
And it's always great to have you on. And you did an article on your website. This was a couple months ago for February for Heart Healthy Month, which February is. And you talked about the right diet to eat for keeping your heart healthy. And I was just very impressed because I thought this is a great thing to go by for how to maintain a healthy diet. Yeah, you, I, I'm very interested in the subject because, of course, it's probably the area of nutrition that I think mainstream medicine and mainstream media get the most wrong. Uh, our decades-long phobia about fat, saturated fat and red meat has really not served us well, and our heart disease, you know, the only reason we've had any improvement in heart disease management really in the last few decades is we can keep people alive in an emergency room after they have a heart attack, and that's terrific, and that's really the arena where modern medicine shows its greatest forte. But then if you sit down with either your doctor or the nutritionist afterwards and say, well, now I've had a heart attack and I know I should eat more healthily, what should I eat? I think the information they get is all wrong. So I needed to set the record straight. It is. The mainstream has still not accepted the truth about saturated fat. I mean, even after books such as Good Calories, Bad Calories, a lot of people, they just want to accept the typical science about it. I mean, even though there were so many flaws in the lipid hypothesis and the diet heart hypothesis. Yes, and even though there have been a number of really wonderful, large review studies over the last couple of years, absolutely blasting the relationship between saturated fat and heart disease, which medicine acknowledges that, but then there's a bit of a disconnect. I was going through a slideshow on, I think, Medscape or WebMD, something I got a daily update from the other day, and it was how best to reduce belly fat, which is, of course, a risk factor for heart disease. And they said in one of the early slides that... Uh, it's been proven now that saturated fat is really not a problem and it doesn't make you gain weight and doesn't cause the problems. But then when it came to the last slides where they recommended what you eat, they recommended you eat whole grains, fresh fruit, and a minimum amount of lean meat. That's like the second half of their slide presentation didn't read the first half of their slide presentation. So even though the science has really accumulated very nicely along the lines of what people inspired by the work of Weston Price or Lauren Cardain, what our inspiration has led us to believe has been confirmed to the extent that science has really looked at it recently, but it hasn't spilled over into nutritional understanding. The Western Price Foundation has certainly been a good organization at promoting the truth about saturated fat. And as this is Meaty May, I think this is a good time for people if they haven't checked out. There's a Facebook page that they run called Red Meat Won't Kill You. And oh, I've I think never everyone, seen that. I think everyone <laughs> should go over and like that page now for Meaty May. I'm, I'm going to do it myself, Aaron. I, you know, I... I'm on there, you know, I'm uh, certainly a, a member, and I'll be speaking at their conference this November, and, but I didn't know they had that specific page on red meat, so um, I'll go there as I uh, defrost my New York steak for my dinner tonight. Nice. Yes, they've started up a couple of those pages as kind of side projects of what they're doing, and so for this month, I certainly want to bring up Red Meat Won't Kill You. And also, the other ones they have, they have No Pink Slime in My Burger. Actually, that's another good one for Meaty May because you shouldn't let the whole pink slime thing scare you. And there are great grass-fed ground beef out there that you can eat. And then the other one, I think this also fits with Meaty May, too, because we should be eating meat and not fake meat made from soy. So their third page is one called Soy Alert. 
Uh-huh. Those are all really good. To, I mean, everything, the work that they have done is certainly is really noteworthy and commendable and inspirational, and it's part of a network of people who have, from one point, viewpoint or another, either, you know, Sally Fallon and Mary Enig as fat scientists, lipid scientists and farmers, or Lauren Cardain, people who are anthropologists, really looking at how people have lived with food and how they've done might be a better inspiration for us than taking medical studies. And as we were observing uh, before the show, there's two big medical studies specifically on L-carnitine, one of them associating L-carnitine, aha, this is the culprit that causes heart disease, and a few days later, a study showing that the higher L-carnitine levels a person has, the more protected they are from heart disease in in various forms, including cardiac mortality. So the, these studies always have something interesting about them for the science geek in all of us, you know, the whether it's a little insight into how gut flora influences cardiac health. I mean, it's interesting. But for real guidelines about how we eat, uh, we can learn so much from people who've looked at how people have eaten and thrived, and then we can try it ourselves. We can try eating a certain way. Perhaps if you're not a meat eater, have been wondering, gee, maybe I should be eating a little meat, or gee, I do eat it when I'm at friends' houses. You know, serve yourself up uh, serving of some form of red meat twice a day for a month and see how you feel. Right, and of course that's red meat that's properly sourced from grass-fed animals. A- absolutely, and although I would say if somebody has been a complete vegetarian and they're thinking about eating meat and the sourcing from grass-fed animals isn't an easy thing for them to do, I would even eat so good meat because I think in the first month you'll have all the beneficial effects of meat even if it's not the highest quality. Then you have a month and you say, wow, I had a lot more energy, I slept better, I was stronger when I went for my walks with my dog, maybe I should bring meat into my diet. Okay, then you're going to get serious about it. Then, and, and you have a friend who says, but meat's destroying the planet. That's the time for them to look at Dr. Savory's TED Talk. Yeah. I assume you've seen that. Oh, yeah. Isn't that fantastic? It's amazing. That is the most heartfelt, moving explanation of the benefit to meat eating, or grass eating carnivores, grass eating herbivores that we carnivores can enjoy um, as a way to save the planet. Oh, Alan Savory inspires me so much. And I really want more people to know about him because you bring the name up to a lot of people. I mean, even people, some that are into the grass-fed movement, and they don't know who he is. And I think it's someone that everyone should know. He's probably one of the most important people in the environmental movement today. I I first had to learn about him at that Western Price Conference that we were at last November. Chris Kirsten talked about him a lot in his speech. And then we also had for our banquet on the Saturday night, we had someone from the Savory Institute speak. Oh, I didn't know that. I had to miss that banquet, but because um, I didn't hear about him until his TED Talk really went on the air a lot this spring. 
Um, so I'm a kind of a, I knew about the theory, but I didn't know about his work personally. It's the kind of work that's worthy of a Nobel Prize. Oh, absolutely. It really can make a tremendous difference in individual health, individuals who no longer have to worry that eating meat is destroying the planet. And if we really implement his practices, there's so much land that's not suitable for growing crops that could feed all sorts of people if animals were were managed properly on that land. Right, because it's only about 10 to 20 percent. I've heard differing numbers, but I'd say somewhere within 10 to 20 percent of the land that's suitable for growing crops. But we have all of this unused land where we can raise animals. And in fact, we also have land that wasn't suitable for growing crops that's been destroyed by these monocultures. Mm -hmm. And so you have people like Joel Salatin, who started a farm on an area where nothing could grow, no grass. And within a short time, there was grass growing again. The animals were providing fertilizer for the vegetables. Mm-hmm. It was a full circle kind of operation, what once had been barren land. That's that's inspirational. Now, you talked about, for people that are transitioning into meeting from being vegetarians, about not necessarily going for the most sustainable meat. That brings up an interesting point, because certainly an excuse that a lot of people have against going grass-fed is the price of it. And I've heard different arguments, because I hear some say that you at least need some sort of fat in your diet. And some have said that, like, if you eliminate processed foods such as sugars and refined flour and vegetable oils, but instead of doing that and going vegetarian if you can't afford the grass-fed meat, that you should even uh, include some calf oil. I've heard that argument. Um, I'm not so sure that's the best way to do it. I mean, I guess if you're on a really tight budget, a thing I think, though, is something to consider is, like you said, about not necessarily going for the best. And, in fact, going back again to the Weston A. Price Foundation, for the members, we get that shopping guide every year that lists things to buy that are suitable for being on a traditional diet. And they have two sections. And the first one is excellent, which those are ones that, if you can, they encourage you to get all those. The other ones are good. And in that, they list in there some sources that aren't fully grass-fed, but certainly are better for you. So my advice would be really try to avoid CAFO meat at any cost, but do go for some of those ones that they recommend, which are good but not excellent, such as like Nyman Ranch. Uh-huh. And I think, you know, for a, a long-term plan, that's absolutely right. Um, I was making really the point that someone who is going to put that as, up as an obstacle to even trying meat would get a benefit, even if they were eating what you and I would consider lower quality meat. I, I'm doing a class at our local Parks and Rec office, and uh, although it, many people were kind of happy, it was a switch when I would tell them they should eat meat. They could eat meat two or even three times a day. And I told, you know, this is where you can get the better meat. Well, I don't know, I don't know. And by the end of the class, which is only six weeks, they're talking about where can they get a freezer and what farmer can they buy half a cow from. So I think somebody, once somebody gets to the point of really appreciating the value meat can have in their life and realizing that 
wow, I am going to be eating this a couple times a day. I think the second part of it, which is, okay, now that you're eating meat, we need to talk to you about, the, again, the impact your meat has on you, the health of the meat, and on the planet. Um, because once you're sold on meat, then it, then it doesn't... It also, you realize, if you're, so when I buy half a cow, I'm paying $5 a pound for meat that includes burger, which would normally be a little bit less than that, and New York steak, which would normally be two or three times that. And I'm not buying crackers. I'm not buying bread. I'm not buying so many things that uh, make the money I spend on each individual food item more than it would be if I we bought it conventionally, but I'm not sure my overall grocery budget is any higher. Now, skipping completely the well, this chocolate is in the middle of our super of our health food store, but other than that, I stay around the edges. Yes, and I'd seen in your article you had talked about the benefits of chocolate, and I've heard two sides to that. Certainly, the plus of what you say with it giving us magnesium and resveratrol. And then there are the negatives being the caffeine and its effect on the adrenal glands. So what is your take on chocolate? I think that's a really good point about adrenal glands. I personally can really tell the difference if I have chocolate. And what I, ha- what I encourage people to try uh, and see if they like it is chocolate that's 85, and I even found a 91% bar uh, this week that I'm going to switch to, I think. It was really good. But I have it at lunchtime, Erin. I, I agree with you that I think in the middle of the day, so yes, chocolate has okay. caffeine in it, and any caffeine can be a stress on the adrenals. Um, so in general, I think caffeine should be in the early part of the day when we have plenty of cortisol anyway, and caffeine is a little bit in harmony with it. People who know that they can have a cup of coffee at o'clock and go to bed can probably also eat chocolate at 8 o'clock and go to bed. But anybody with any adrenal stress would consider chocolate as a source of caffeine that could be problematic too, yeah. For those that do consume chocolate, how often should it be consumed? Like is it something maybe like once a week or every couple days? I th- you know, if you, I, I think it's really fine to have it once a day if you uh, – so this, the interest, that's a very interesting whole issue about food frequency because it probably is better not just for people with food allergies but for all of us to have a variety in what we eat. So it's pretty easy to get in a kind of habitual relationship with even good food like eggs for breakfast or dark chocolate at lunchtime. And it might serve us all well to think, well, I'll have chocolate on days and on these other days I'll have half a cup of berries if I want something after my lunch. And I won't have, you know, I actually uh, have confronted the egg thing recently because I love eggs. I could eat four eggs a day. (laughs) But then I had the thought, what if I ever got an allergy to eggs? That would be, I would be horrified. That would be terrible for me. And one way you protect yourself from getting, uh, developing allergies to foods that you like a great deal is to not eat them daily and even take little breaks from them. Uh, And then, first of all, you'll be able to tell when you eat them again if you are having a reaction to them. 
um, eggs, though, uh, you know, we, we can eat them very frequently. Eating them less frequently and preparing them very well is the, is, are the, is the best way to minimize a, a re- developing an egg allergy, uh, soaking them gently so that they don't excite such an inflammatory response when you eat them, cooking and treating the yolks really gently. So just as uh, we can now say in terms of heart health, you can eat eggs every day, and for brain health, you probably should eat eggs, at least the yolk, every day. You can probably do the same thing for chocolate, but for both foods, you might have a benefit from taking breaks, either one or two day breaks, or even a week or two long break from something that otherwise you would want to eat every day. We'd actually brought that up at a Western Price chapter meeting in Pasadena about how if you're something that you love, you shouldn't eat it too much because you could develop an allergy to it. And eggs is certainly a good one to bring up about that because a lot of people recommend several eggs a day. I know Natasha Campbell McBride says at least two eggs a day, and she says when you're sick, even eat more. More specifically, what do you think is the proper way to eat eggs? Like, Is there a certain way to cook as far as like scrambling or poaching? Uh, I, that is a good question, and the, there's a couple... Uh, things to consider. First of all, the yolk really is a beautiful little package for cholesterol, which is a highly fragile species that oxidizes when it's exposed to oxygen and particularly when it's agitated. So I always recommend keeping the yolk intact while you cook it. And then you've got the white, which are proteins, which are susceptible to forming advanced glycation end products, which has that great acronym AGE. So if you cook, if you like to get that brown sizzle on the bottom of your eggs, you're actually doing that at your own risk or peril because it will cause an inflammatory response in your body as it's agitating the protein excessively with the high heat in the pan. So soft-boiled eggs, poached eggs, and gently fried eggs so that they don't stick to the pan and they don't. uh, And I tend to cook eggs in either uh, coconut oil, which makes a great pan lubricating agent, or butter or or lard from well-raised pigs. all of those work, but you don't want to get it to really sizzle. You don't want it to get it, the protein to crust, and you ideally shouldn't break the yolks. And if you want an omelet once a week on Sunday, that's okay. Um, Paul Geminet, who I'm sure you're familiar with from the Perfect mm-hmm. Health Diet, his recommendation is not so much two eggs a day as three yolks every day because of the really valuable nutrients and fats that we get from egg yolks that are pretty hard to get anywhere else, uh, in, in, except unless you're a good Weston Price uh, member and are a good animal organ eater, you know, getting some of the things from liver that we can also get from egg yolks. Are you a liver eater, a liver enjoyer? I am, yeah. I found a way to enjoy it. I did the recipe. It was on the blog, Mommy Potamus. She has a grass-fed beef and the liver chili. So you use ground beef and liver, mix it up. And I found that's a good way to get liver into the diet where you don't get totally the livery taste, but certainly it's in there. Uh-huh. That's, I'll have to try that. I've uh, put the, um, chopped up the liver really fine and mixed it with ground beef for a, a meatloaf. Um 
And sometimes just with bacon and onions, the way uh, mothers used to cook it for people back in the 50s. The meatloaf is another good way, and that's always a staple of the Wise Tradition conferences is they always serve that organ meatloaf. So that's another way. And there's also what they suggested on Healing Quest in Season 10 when they did the Weston Price segments was they had a Reuben sandwich and put a little liver pate uh, mixed in with the corned beef and the sauerkraut. Yeah. Actually, the, our local Asian restaurant has a great um, pork sandwich, which I keep Sometimes I forget to tell them to hold the bread. I want everything else in it, but it is a pork, it's a pate and uh, pork and pickled vegetables, which is essentially, I guess, an Asian version of the Reuben. Uh, yeah, that's great. And I actually went right to the beef liver, kind of not knowing the difference between beef liver and chicken, because I know a lot of people have said, oh, the beef liver is too strong. You know, you might want to start with chicken liver, but I didn't hear that. So I just jumped in and had the beef liver. But that brings up another point I wanted to talk about, which is white meat, the poultry, because I know you recommend that, but certainly you recommend having the red meat twice a day. What is your take on poultry overall? Do you think that the red meat is superior? I do think the red meat is superior. I've been convinced that I, would, I think you can do it, look at it from an, uh, a various points of view. If you look at, um, you know, chickens are more scavengers, and so there's going to be a variety of nutrients that they incorporate into their eggs. But for um, unless they're really carefully fed chickens, they're, they're, um, both their eggs and their meat are actually kind of skewed in that omega-3, omega-6 balance. They are higher in omega-6s except the chicken livers, which are higher in omega-3s. So that's another good reason to try them. And I don't know about beef liver. I'll have to look into that. But the, um, the various nutrients, the um, CoQ10 and the carnitine, which, you know, excelled in this morning's study, but not in last week's study, are, are more prevalent in the red meat. And they're the you know, those carnivores are those um, herbivores. I'm sorry, I keep saying it wrong. Those herbivores are really serving a purpose for us, doing with green grass what we cannot do for it, turning it in with their complex stomachs into a variety of nutrients that we can get when we eat their meat. So I do think red meat is superior. And if I talk to someone who's, uh, oh, I'm not a vegetarian anymore, and I just eat chicken and fish. I do my best to find out, I, but through interviewing them, what's the red meat that I'm most likely to tweak them into trying? For some people it means, uh, oh, your grandpa used to hunt. Well, if you go down to our local shopping cart, sometimes they have frozen elk and frozen venison. Why don't you try that? Um, and somebody else really just has a fondness for old hamburgers from you know, high school or something. So I always do try to get them to branch out beyond chicken and fish and to keep their so red meat is something, yes, I think people can eat a couple times a day, even three times a day. And I think poultry, on the other hand, is a scantier product. And once a week for a variety and um, enjoying the taste, that's great. But I hate to see somebody, especially when, 
you know, a lot of people who don't eat meat regularly will make the choice that the, they'll, it's easiest to handle. They'll just get boneless, skinless chicken breasts. And that's really the most interesting part of the chicken. Probably the best part is the back and the thighs, the darker meat, um, and, you know, scraping out some of the, it's not chicken liver, but it's, I don't know if it's lungs or I'm not sure what it is, but on the underside of the back part of the chicken, you get some of the richer organ type meat on that piece. So fish is great and people could probably subsist on fish all the time. I'm certainly not happy if I see somebody trying to subsist on chicken as their only form of protein. Now for me, I like to buy the whole chicken because I like to make the chicken broth. Uh-huh. So. I do a little of every part. Speaking of the organ meats and chicken, those chicken hearts are so good. Have you had those? Not ever collectively. You know, a lot of times there'll be some thrown in with the liver. And you used to, so when you buy a chicken, do you get all the innards with it still? No, I haven't actually gotten that with the chicken, but I have had the chicken hearts. One of the members in my chapter, Dr. Roseanne Vollmert, um, she's an osteopath, and she often likes to bring in organ meats. So one month she brought in chicken hearts for our potluck. And uh, at first I was a little scared to try them because just my thought of what a heart would taste like. And I, I, was, I don't know, I was expected to be really like soft and gooey or something, but <laughs> it didn't taste like that at all. Actually, it's probably one of the best parts of chicken I had. I mean, I'm with you that also like the thighs are probably my favorite chicken part because it's the darker part of the chicken. Uh-huh. Yeah, I've had um, beef heart made into, which I've loved, and then recently we got a recipe off Rob Wolf's website that somebody submitted to a chili cook-off, and it, it was, and then we, I don't know if his recipe was it or we used it. We did pork, so we had pork heart and ground pork in the chili, and it was great. And heart is almost, it's much mild on liver, and it it has more of a meaty consistency. It seems like almost a, well, it is a muscle. It's really not an, you know, this is, and in fact, that's what leads me to make the conclusions I make in how you should eat for a healthy heart is that we have to remember that the heart may be an organ, but it's a skeletal muscle, just like your arm or your leg. It's not a mushy collection of ductwork and uh, disconnected cells the way the liver is. Uh, the kidney also is a, is a more compact uh, organ than the liver is to eat, but the heart is actually a muscle, and it actually will, should be really the mildest of all the organs. Right, that makes sense. This is all making me hungry, which <laughs> what a few shows where people would expect to be hearing someone that's hungry uh, thinking of organ meats. So we'll talk more about this, the proper organ meats to eat and the other proper foods to eat for a heart-healthy diet. But first, a word from our sponsors. To Your Health Sprouted Flour Company offers organic sprouted grains and flours for all your baking needs. We have more than 34 sprouted products hundreds of recipes, and are always available to answer your flour and baking questions. Whether you're making sourdough breads, French baguettes, birthday cakes, granola, or pancakes, let us be your sprouted grain and flour source. Certified organic and kosher, featuring 20 gluten-free sprouted products. Visit our website at organicsproutedflour.net or call toll-free 877-401-6837. 
What is a healthy diet? Conflicting information is thrown at us daily. Help chart your course to wellness with a steady guide, the Weston A. Price Foundation. Our nutrition and health information is helping many families recover from degenerative disease and nutrient deficiencies. Join for only $40 a year and receive our quarterly journal. Visit our website, westonaprice.org, for more details. Olea States Olive Oil has been produced by the Cronus family on a small estate in Sparta, Greece since 1856. The olives are all certified organic and hand-picked. The oil is cold-pressed within 30 minutes and is extra virgin with an acidity of 0.24. I use Olea for all my olive oil needs, cooking, baking, salad dressing, hummus, and much more. Olea is distributed in the U.S. by Carl Berger. All products can be ordered on the website oleastates.com or by contacting Carl by email k-a-r-l at oleastates.com. And we're back. I'm talking to Dr. Deborah about how to maintain a heart-healthy diet. We've been talking about the different types of meat to eat, how much you should eat it, and other things such as organ meats and eating fish a number of times a week. And Deborah, you were talking about vegetarians that convert back into eating some animal products and one just eats the poultry and then what types of red meat you suggest for them to eat. What I was wondering about was how about some gaming meat that tastes kind of like chicken but is red meat such as a rabbit? You know, I've never tasted rabbit, but it certainly made an appearance at our local farmer's market. Have you had it? I have. I mean, I've just kind of had a point now where I want to try like any type of animal. So, yeah, I mean, I've had rabbit. I've had alligator, rattlesnake. <laughs> uh, the, what we also have at our local farmer's market, which is very good and surprisingly from the species is a very mild meat, is goat. So they make goat steaks and goat shanks. Uh, and so, although I like lamb a great deal, some people find lamb too flavorful for them. And goat is really mild. So I will have to uh, – now, these are things that we can actually only get locally at the farmer's market, not at our local supermarkets. Although I keep being optimistic, thinking that this is all changing, that we're going to exert a pressure on the market, and it, it might start with a, a small or more select group. If you think 10 or 15 years ago, the uh, – distance you had to go to buy something that was organic and how easy that is now we were just discussing this morning uh, at my rowing turnout that there's five or six markets now within a small little radius at our local big city not the little town I live near but the city nearby Medford Oregon handful now of new supermarkets and they all have significant organic sections that's new that, that 10 years ago would not have been the case when you put up a, a handful of new markets sprinkled in a city. So organic has become really kind of commonplace, which is great because it's a way to avoid genetically modified, maybe our best way right now, or certainly our best way right now. Um, and I'd like to think that as this awareness spreads, um, it was at the Paleo Conference in Austin earlier in the month, and very impressed to see that the interest in sustainability that you bring from your background is also really there in the paleo movement. They're all talking the importance for the planet, and you know it's really kind of self-serving for all of us if 
if grass-fed beef is the most sustainable for the planet, it's most likely to be there for us in five years when we still want it. Uh, I'm hoping we're putting a pressure on the market so that that is going to be a more prevalent and easily found food, you know, right now it's a specialty item, but shouldn't it be our everyday kind of beef? It should, and I think we are putting pressure on the market. Another thing that I see a rise in are butcher shops. I know in L.A., and this is a larger city, so I don't know what it's like in other cities, but in L.A., we're seeing a lot of butcher shops with sustainably raised meat pop up, and I'd imagine that some of those maybe soon will be selling some more exotic animals like rabbits there. Do you have any butcher shops out where you are? We have a brand new butcher shop that just emerged this year, and I haven't looked to see whether they have rabbit, but they have a great selection of well-raised meat. That's the only kind they'll carry uh, from around Southern Oregon. So, yeah, I think they're if they're happening here and they're happening in Los Angeles, they are probably spreading around. One of the uh, obstacles that they have to overcome is that uh, the number of meat United States Department of Agriculture approved slaughtering houses really constricted over the last few decades. They became highly centralized where it used to be more of a kind of small town thing, but as animal finishing became centralized, so meat processing. So we have to resurrect an old industry, which is the cottage slaughterhouse. (laughs) I think there's another name for them that sounds more elegant than slaughterhouse. But right now, at least where I live, animals have to be trucked two hours north to be processed in a plant where the meat can then be sold commercially. If I just want to share my cow with you, I can get the local guy to come out and do it. But I can't offer it in a on a, on a website or at a, even a farmer's market unless I have it processed at the facility two hours north of here. Yeah, that is certainly a problem, a little roadblock in yeah. getting the meat really sustainable. Yeah, but I think there's going to be interest there. I think You probably saw the study that came out, I think, of the University of Iowa last year that showed you take a whole area of land and, and raise a conventional monocrop on it and you make X amount of dollars. Or you could take that same land and make a complex and diverse and sustainable organic garden farm. You would make the same X amount of dollars, but you would have put no pesticides in the land, you would have developed the topsoil, and you would have employed three times as many people. So more money changing hands with more little... we're, We're actually trying to decentralize we found that really centralization doesn't work so well for the food supply. And you were talking a little earlier about how from animals such as like cows, we can get the nutrients that we're not able to eat directly ourselves. And when you look at the cow's diet, I think that's a clear sign of how we are omnivores and not herbivores because the way that cows are able to digest this food is because they have multiple stomachs. We don't. Yeah, they imagine... Imagine deciding you were going, you wanted to uh, live only on green grass. You know, it, it, they they can extract and their guts extract by how they ferment and what they do with those raw materials. They can get things out of raw grass that our physiology is completely unable to do. Yeah, I think it's a 
it makes you know it, it's hard for me to even understand the argument so i'm probably not a good person to put up in an argument against someone who says we're naturally vegetarians because we have molars and we don't have the incisors that wolves do um because it's so clear to me that cows do something who are so clearly herbivores their digestion is so far superior to ours in being able to extract nutrients from grass. You're helping me give a little shameless plug to have something coming up on my blog, uh, hopefully soon, about how to talk to people when they bring up those arguments, because I know certainly a lot of ways that, that you can do that. And that argument about molars, I mean, the problem is always when they do that, they're comparing our molars to molars of animals that are carnivores, not omnivores. Uh-huh. And that's always the problem with their argument is that they act like there are only two types, herbivores and carnivores. Right. And the thing is, there is one in the middle, which is <laughs> omnivores, which, I mean, omnivores are going to have something in between what a That's right. herbivore has, which is totally flat teeth, and a carnivore, which is totally sharp teeth. So, you know, we have a couple sharp teeth in there. And Neil Bernard of the Physicians Committee for Irresponsible Medicine, I saw this presentation that he was doing where he shows a human's teeth and in the drawing, they just leave out <laughs> those two sharp teeth that we have. So there's a lot of spin that they do and just total lies that were fed about that. Uh-huh. And I, I do have an appreciation that uh, sometimes I need to find that that smaller step between some, where somebody else's position is and my position is. Uh, and some people just aren't, aren't going to change and they are vegetarian or, and vegetarians I feel like I can work with and respect. If a vegetarian will, will and can eat dairy and eggs, then I think they can, and, and fish oil, some form of fermented cod liver oil, then I feel like they can make a healthy diet for themselves. Uh, but if somebody has problems, it's pretty hard to uh, scramble together a good diet as a vegetarian to resolve health problems, which are almost all from excessive amounts of improperly prepared carbohydrates. Uh, it's pretty hard to scramble together a vegetarian diet that's going to be adequately nourishing for those people with health problems. I agree with you, too. I think that's a big problem with vegetarians is a lot of them become really carbitarians. And I think you can be a healthy vegetarian if you do include a lot of the saturated fats in your diet, the eggs and the dairy. And like you said, also, they should be willing to consider fish oils. And Kayla Daniel says they should also be willing to consider a bone broth in there. Uh-huh. That, that You know, bone broth is... Uh, like bone broth and fermented cod liver oil, in my experience with my patients and in the class I teach, it will kind of maybe furrow their eyebrows or wrinkle their nose. Not sure if I'm going to try this stuff or if I'm going to like it. It's a little hard to get people to try those things, but once introduced into the diet, most people have no trouble continuing to implement them in their diet or to take them as a supplement. Uh, bone broth can have some amazingly healing effects from people and particularly, so the thing with vegetarians, it's a really good, that's a really good point you brought up. And, um, you know, the, the thing about with vegetarians, it raises that question we had talking about early in the conversation, which is if eggs and dairy are your main source of protein, you are going to eat them all the time. And if you have a damaged 
physiology at all, you're going to run the risk of getting allergic to them. And probably the best single food for healing from food allergies is just what you said, is bone broth. And is it true that eggs are one of the top allergens? Egg, eggs are one of the top allergens, and for most people, it should be that it's egg whites. There are some people who are allergic to egg yolks, but yeah, and dairy's right up there. Right. Well, specifically the egg whites alarm me, and this is another reason not to get a flu vaccine because they use egg whites in the flu vaccine, and a lot of people don't realize that they're allergic to it. So if you have an allergy to egg whites and you get a flu vaccine unknowing to that, ugh, that's, that's not yeah. pretty what can resolve. It's, a, I don't, I, it's pretty hard to justify getting the flu vaccine the, the, for any reason. The, the populations that, oh, yeah, the, there's so many yeah, that theoretically need them are the ones in whom it's not going to work. And, um, you know, and uh, I, I say you should get the flu every five or ten years, and, and I had the flu this winter, and it was actually the week that we moved, so I was carrying boxes up and down with the flu, which I I strongly recommend against. That was not a pleasant experience, but it's better than getting the flu shot every year. Is get the flu every five or ten years. See how healthy you are, how well you recover. Um, get support. Have bone broth every day. Um, it's it, it's better than running the risk of all the injections, all the ingredients that can come with that flu shot, including the eggs, as you suggested, and of course, mercury, if they have it with a preservative in it. Right. Now, earlier we were talking a little about vegetarians and about how they need to have, it's hard to do a vegetarian diet and it's good to try to transition into meat, but certainly there are some advantages of getting fruits and vegetables in your diet. What are some of the fruits and vegetables that you recommend? I'd say from the fruit point of view, the strongest recommendation I would always give would be for berries. Uh, the dark-colored berries have been independently studied and shown to reduce risk of various kinds of disease, including specifically heart disease in women and reducing breast cancer risk uh, occurrence and recurrence. So berries I always start with, and then any of the fruits that are colored all the way through means the color is really where the nutrients are uh, of various sorts, and so... You, although you're going to take in a lot of sugar with most fruits and fructose, which can be hard for people with certain health problems, at least you're getting a lot of vitamins and compensating for it while you're eating the fruit. So fruit that's colored all the way through. Things like apples, bananas, and pears that aren't colored all the way through are not that different in my book from actual sweets. So have a little bit on them if you really love them, but they're really sweets. They're not fruits. And then vegetables, uh, the leafy greens provide us so much uh, flavor. Uh, uh, they're a great transport mechanism for putting other things on them. So, you know, butter on cooked greens and salad dressings and other fresh and colored vegetables on salad greens is a great way to fill up a good part of your plate. And then in our gut, those leafy greens are just wonderful food and grist for the probiotic mill that keeps us healthy. Uh, beyond that, I think vegetables get negotiated a little bit on a what's your, what are your goals and what's your condition basis. So uh, if somebody's 
dealing with an overweight issue, I'll give them a choice. You know, you 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 can not have a little bit of the sweet potatoes, starchy vegetables. And I, I have two kind of different diet plans, really depending on whether people are more attached to starchy vegetables or dairy. Um, I think you need to give up one or the other if you're on a weight loss or health problem-solving mission, at least temporarily. But people who are basically just healthy and looking to what they can eat, the more color, the better. Red cabbage, uh, blue blueberries, green leaves, um, orange peaches and melons. Things that have a lot of color for them are the best nutrient density foods we can have from the fruit and vegetable arena, knowing that it's really great to combine them in a meal or a setting at least with butter, for instance, or animal products, which help us do a better job of absorbing the nutrients that are in the fruits and vegetables. Yes, I like that that you bring that up about the butter because there have been studies that have shown how kids have been able to get more nutrients from the vegetables by putting butter on them. And that's something that's another thing that's totally ignored by the mainstream health industry. Butter's been so demonized and we've been told to eat this awful margarine. Yeah, I I, I think, you know, I would think I can, that's one of those things where I think the left hand kind of doesn't always catch up with the right hand because on the one hand, everybody's read the studies that margarine's bad for you and butter's, I don't think they've ever still gotten to the point where butter's okay, but they certainly have lots of studies that margarine's bad for you. And then you ask them a page or two later or a week or two later what you should be eating and they'll recommend margarine. So margarine itself has been spiffed up a little bit for the parties. doesn't have quite so many apparent trans fats. But, you know, going back to one of the great legacies of the Weston Price Foundation is the work of Mary Enig, to whom we can thank, whom we can thank that we have trans fats labeling on our food. But, you know, they only show up, they, they, they can get a free pass on trans fats, which are, of course, not healthy and was the big problem with margarine to start with, um, if there's less than a certain amount of trans fats per serving. So uh, it, if you're looking at something and the serving size says, oh, no trans fats, that's great, and the serving size is one cracker and you've got a whole box of crackers in front of you, you know those crackers are high in trans fats because they've, they've made the serving size so small, it's the only way to get the trans fats under the threshold beyond which they would have to report it on the package. Right. That's certainly a big problem and a loophole is that a lot of these companies can put per serving size and it's so small that they can hide the fact that they're trans fats. I think a big problem in the whole butter revival was in the 90s when there was all this news revealed about margarine then they just come up with these what are known as soft margarines, the smart balance, or as Sarah Pope, the healthy home economist, calls it, stupid balance. <laughs> and there was this whole thing believing that these soft margarines of smart balance and earth balance and, I don't know, country crock, whatever other companies were out there, there's this belief that, oh, these are okay for you. But they're made from all the same uh, vegetable oils that have shown repeatedly in comparative studies to be heart hazardous. So it's kind of crazy. I, I, I think they, they probably reduced the trans because that's what, or the satch. I'm not sure what they think they've made better, but they're still starting with a raw material that 
doesn't do well when it's looked at in clinical studies and certainly not in population studies. Right. It's like you said, they have the same ingredients really as the other margarines, the vegetable oils. What I do when people try to tell me that they're eating the good margarines, I'll ask them, do you think French fries are healthy? And they'll say no. And I say, well, why? And they're like, well, because of what they're fried in. And I'll bring up that it's the same thing that most French fries are cooked in because, yeah, not a lot of places are going to cook them in lard or beef tallow. So, I mean, you know, listeners to this show know there is a healthy way to eat French fries, as a little side note. Yes. But typically at restaurants, it's cooked in a vegetable oil. And that's the same thing that's in the margarine, not to mention it also doesn't look yellow. So that's an artificial coloring that they put in there. Mm-hmm. Yeah, highly suspect. And I think it's a rare person who, when given the permission to eat butter again, doesn't seize the opportunity because it it really is it really is a great food, isn't it? Oh, it is. I love it. Yeah, because for me, I was one that was doing the stupid balance, and as soon as I discovered the Weston A. Price Foundation, I threw that out and started eating butter again. Happy and man. I forgot how great it tastes. <laughs> I only ate it like. So on occasion, yeah. you know, at the restaurants we were having the bread and didn't even remember that it tasted so much better than that stupid balance. And I had just one bite of it. And oh, I just, I'm back. So I'm back. Butter's in my life. <laughs> Butter is great. Um, so in addition to vegetables that you recommend, I know you also recommend some supplements. You talked a little I earlier do. about I, the cod liver there's, oil. There's one more sub, uh, vegetable category I want to bring up. And this is something I've oh, learned sure. from... Uh, the uh, Weston Price, uh, when Dr. Stephanie Seneff was has been speaking the last couple of years, you know, she's focused a lot of attention on the material sulfur, which is to be found in garlic and onions and cruciferous vegetables. And and uh, although the cruciferous vegetables shouldn't be eaten raw because they're a little thyroid toxic, uh, a healthy vegetable array will include garlic and onions and cruciferous vegetables. So that to just be thrown in there with the vegetables uh, for the sulfur content, uh, which uh, is somewhat depleted in our soil but concentrated in those categories of vegetables. So, yeah, that's – but the supplements. You are going to ask about the supplements. Right. Yeah, so you talked a little earlier about cod liver oil, and I know you also recommend magnesium. And for people that don't want to eat the organ meats, you recommend – a organ supplement from Dr. Ron. Uh-huh. And people are usually pretty happy taking all three of those. Uh, and I think they, they, for, you know, you have to do a little flexibility, the way they can be obtained and the way they can be taken, you know, the cod liver oil either in capsules or in the liquid, just for a wonderful uh, difference, a wonderful combination of essential nutrients most people can see the difference in their lives when they take it. Less in, less inflammation in general, just less inflammation. So that one goes over pretty well. The uh, organ delight, I've had some people say it makes a big difference in their sleep or a big difference in their energy, um, the kind of things you'd like to see with someone eating a well-balanced protein uh, selection that would include organ meats. And magnesium... I think you know so many there's such a there was a presentation at last year's Western Price Conference about magnesium the I think the hidden miracle I think is her I can't remember the doctor who writes about magnesium's name but um 
so many of the complaints that bring people to my office, headaches, sleeplessness, restless leg syndrome, muscle twitches, constipation, depression, uh, children with various forms of difficulty concentrating, whether it's full-blown ADD or they just don't pay attention when someone talks to them. A lot of these complaints can be relieved by taking magnesium in one of its forms. Uh, So oral magnesium is great to get the gut moving, but if you take, if you get the gut moving too much, you're going to lose the magnesium that's in the gut. So it's great to try it in the oil form uh, or the lotion form, which can be rubbed into the body. And a child with sensitive skin who doesn't like it in that form might take it as magnesium salts in their bath. So a lot of different ways to get magnesium into our magnesium-hungry bodies and can make a real difference. The person I believe you're talking about is Carolyn Dean. That's her name. The magnesium Miracle. Right. And for these supplements, are these ones that you think everyone should take or are there some people that you think get enough like magnesium and organ meats in their diet of natural foods they don't need to take the supplements? I think the organ meats, uh, people can definitely get enough in their food. Uh, The cod liver oil, I think everybody should be on and the magnesium, most people. But if someone has None of these issues that I'm talking about, you know, their bowels work great, they sleep great. If anything, they're a little on the over-relaxed side and very conscient. They might naturally be able have a physiology that extracts magnesium from their diet in a highly efficient way. So, But as I said, there's just so many people, so m- many of the problems that people present to it. I didn't even mention cardiovascular health in that list, but so many problems that people bring to my medical practice uh, will benefit from magnesium in some form or another. Not everybody, but most. All right. Well, we have to go to our desserts in a second, but before we go, let the listeners know where they can find your website and learn more about your practice and what you're all about. Thanks, Aaron. My website's at www drdebrahmd.com and the doctor is the dr way it's not spelled out the whole way so drdebrah.com i'd love to have uh, your listeners uh, check out my website and let me know more of what they'd like to read or uh, inter- exchange me there that'd be great i agree that would be great deborah thank you so much for coming on the program always a pleasure to have you and now for the desserts how to live appropriately in the upcoming week this Monday, May 13th, To Your Health Sprouted Flour will be releasing its Einkorn Grains and Flour. To Your Health will be the first company to offer a sprouted version of the original wheat grain. You can pre-order it now on the website organicsproutedflour.net, and we'll be talking all about this as our main course on the show next week. Also, the Weston A. Price Foundation's Wise Traditions Conference in Atlanta this November is now open for registration. If you register by September 16th, you save $50, plus you have a chance to win an early bird prize. Go to the Weston Price website at westonaprice.org to sign up. For a more detailed list of events, check out the Weston A. Price Pasadena community calendar at westonapricepasadena.blogspot.com. That's all for this week of The Appropriate Omnivore. My guests next week will be Peggy Sutton of Tear Health Sprouted Flower and Jade Coyle of einkorn.com. For more information on my show and my guests, visit my blog at appropriateomnivore.com.